This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Pfizer, working to deliver breakthroughs that change patients' lives. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The emergence of the novel coronavirus has presented huge obstacles for people living with cancer and the healthcare workers who care for them. In this segment, Ned Sharpless, director of the National Cancer Institute, will discuss how COVID-19 is affecting cancer care across the country. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer at The Washington Post. Pleased to welcome you to the second installment of Chasing Cancer 2020, in which we talk to leading oncologists about curing a disease that affects so many people around the world. My first guest this morning is one such expert, Dr. Ned Sharpless, who's the director of the National Cancer Institute. Welcome, Dr. Sharpless. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, you have written that uh, the uh, change that there could be as many as 10,000 extra deaths as a result of delays in screening and um, care during the coronavirus pandemic. How did you get to that number? So we uh, estimated using a network of modeling experts that we have here at the National Cancer Institute uh, they have a sophisticated way of predicting cancer incidence and mortality in the future uh, using models that have been extensively validated for other purposes. And so we asked them to estimate, uh, you know, if a few kind of things happened, like we had less screening and less treatment of new cancers, uh, what would that effect be on cancer incidence and mortality uh, for colon and breast cancer, where the models are most advanced and sophisticated? And using that approach, we found that there would uh, likely be about 10,000 excess deaths uh, from those two cancers alone over the next decade. And so that's about a 1% increase in excess deaths for those types of cancers. We, we started this effort a while ago, early on in the pandemic, and, and now we know more. And I think our initial assumptions about the disruption to care from the pandemic were very conservative. In other words, I think the, the pandemic has actually provided more disruptions than we modeled in. So for example, our modeling assumed a, a reduction of colonoscopy and mammography, you know, screening tests for cancer on the order of 75%. But now we believe those disruptions have even been greater than that in many places. And wow. similarly, we assumed a six month kind of delay in treatment and we think that might be greater in many places as well too. So do you foresee other major public health crises um, as a result of this pandemic in, in coming years? Right. I, I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, special or unique about cancer care with regard to the public health issues that the pandemic presents. Uh, you know, hospitals have been shut down to all things but coronavirus. They've stopped a lot of their normal clinical procedures. They've stopped everything they call elective, which an elective procedure uh, may be a very significant and medically necessary procedure. It's just one you can defer for a little bit of time. But you know, we think that the problems that we're seeing in uh, delayed diagnosis and delayed treatment of cancer will also have, play out in other non-cancer diseases like heart disease and stroke and neurodegenerative disorders. And, and, and so the things that are problems for Americans, if they're not delayed and treated, if they're not diagnosed and treated in a timely fashion, we expect that, that that'll be bad. That, that'll have public health consequences uh, wow. in lots of diseases. So what should the cancer industry be doing? What should doctors be doing to try to mitigate these impacts? Well, I, I want to say, you know, 
first of all, it's important to note that we've made a lot of progress in cancer over the last few decades, and our abilities to treat it and care for it are much better than they've ever been. And this year, we're seeing a, you know, a record number of new therapies make it into clinical use uh, through FDA approval and other means. And, and so there's this real great backdrop of progress. And now we're, you know, the pandemic has provided this new challenge uh, against that backdrop of progress. And, 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 and so I believe you know, we have to collectively, as a group of cancer doctors, researchers, and caregivers, you know, get together and you know, take collective action to prevent you know, our patients from suffering needlessly from the pandemic. And, and I think there are things we can do. Uh, we can be innovative in how we provide care. We, we're moving things to telehealth, you know, doing some areas of care over the phone that we used to do in person. We're being clever about how we do clinical trials. We're incorporating new modalities for therapy earlier and at different stages. So I, I think through research and science and collective action, we can mitigate the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on cancer patients. But we have to do that so, because we don't want to change one public health crisis for another. Right. Do you see any advantages in this slowing down of screenings, um, uh, biopsies, or any of these issues? They raise false negatives sometimes, and that causes problems of their own. Are there any uh, benefits that could come from this sort of intense behavioral experiment we've all been forced into? Right. I, I think that um, the, the, the most obvious benefit of, of, of delaying these sorts of elective procedures and screenings that you mentioned is that we preserve hospital capacity so that it won't be overwhelmed from coronavirus patients. And that's prudent and wise and totally appropriate in specific geographic regions of the country. Uh, no one wants to see hospitals become overwhelmed. But uh, and you're right, there is some diagnosis and screening that, that finds indolent cancer that is less likely to be clinically significant. But having said that, in general, uh, these cancer screening approaches we have, and, and particularly the diagnosis of, of symptomatic patients with new symptoms of cancer, that's really important and leads to therapy that's very effective. And, and to not do that for a prolonged period of time, we think will be mostly in aggregate bad to quite bad for our patients if we can't do something about it. So my colleague, Laura, uh, Laurie McGinley, wrote a story this week about the, tr uh, the challenges doctors are facing wooing patients back into their offices. Um, how would you advise people in hard hit states like Florida and Arizona about the need for screenings or uh, primary care appointments before they even get to cancer treatment? Right. I, I think um, it's important for patients to, uh, you know, this is why this is challenging because it involves some nuance. You have to communicate relative risk and and going to the doctor uh, in one part of the country for a routine screening exam might be totally safe today, whereas in other parts of the country, it might not be a good idea. So local advice from your caregiver is the uh, first issue. Um, doing things over the phone or through other modalities that we used to do in person is a good idea. And then the uh, good habits around social distancing and masking and these sorts of things that we know have public health benefit uh, should you have to go out and see your doctor is important. There are things that can be postponed. We, we know that uh, treatments and screenings of certain areas in cancer can be delayed a little while, but, but not indefinitely. And we do know for patients with, um, for example, certain kinds of cancer, the risk of their cancer not getting optimal treatment is far greater to them than the risk of catching coronavirus, for example. So, so you know, some people have certain kinds of cancer that really need treatment where we have effective therapies and delaying that because of a fear of going out uh, is, is not in their best interest. 
So you've mentioned telemedicine a couple of times, and I've spoken to many other doctors in ERs and places, and they've surprised me with what can be done through telemedicine now. Tell us how it works in, in cancer treatment. Yeah, this has been an amazing uh, development, and I think uh, this, if there is sort of a something we've learned from the pandemic that I think will be a benefit uh, going forward, it's around this topic that, uh, you know, overnight uh, doctors in all specialties, including oncology, uh, have learned, uh, you know, have, have been given the ability to do telemedicine for lots of uh, clinical situations. And it's been widely embraced because we've had to embrace it. We've had to use this. And I think the uh, medical community has been very creative and, and, and ingenious about how to use telemedicine. And there are lots of things that one can do by telemedicine uh, that it wasn't obvious we could do uh, that way before. So, for example, in oncology, we've moved a lot of the clinical trials that we do that are, you know, for novel therapeutics into telemedicine, meaning you can talk to the doctor about this new therapy by phone. You can consent to the trial by phone, never coming into the doctor's office. And then the drug can get mailed to you without you actually actually having to leave your home. So we can do something very complex and, and challenging like enrollment in a clinical trial uh, effectively by a telehealth. So, uh, you know, I, I, telehealth has really changed how we deliver care and, and, and I, for one, believe it's here to stay. I, I don't think our patients are gonna wanna go back to the era when they had to see their doctor for everything. But having said that, you can't do chemotherapy infusion by telemedicine, you can't do a mammogram by telemedicine, you can't do a colonoscopy by telemedicine. We're still gonna need uh, doctor's visits and we have to be innovative to solve that problem too. So one of the groups that has been sort of largely spared uh, the worst part of the coronavirus pandemic is still having to go through cancer treatment, and that's children. Um, what have been the special concerns for you about pediatric cancer patients through this crisis? Right. Well, I, you know, uh, several concerns. So the first is that they, uh, the children who have uh, addressable, curable cancers get the proper treatment so that, they, okay. that their care isn't displaced by... Um, you know, some other aspect of pandemic response. And, you know, that's true for all patients with cancer, but particularly in pediatric oncology, where many of the patients have a very good prognosis with proper treatment. So, uh, you know, not interrupting care, delaying care, or decreasing curative care, you know, those things that one might be tempted to do because of the pandemic, we need to press on and make sure they get full therapy. Uh, secondly, that the patients aren't put at risk, that they are uh, seen when they need to be seen in a way that minimizes their chance of contracting uh, coronavirus, we think that kids in general have a lower risk for bad outcome when infected by coronavirus. But, you know, children with a weakened immune system from cancer therapy, we still believe are a vulnerable population and we want to protect them from any infection, including this kind of viral infection. Uh, the, the hospitals that treat a lot of children are being quite innovative. They're testing a lot of people, they're, they're, they're limiting contact, they're doing things through, you know, these new approaches we discussed. So. Uh, I, I think we can develop, we can provide high quality pediatric oncology care during the pandemic. Yeah, and limiting visitors, which must be particularly hard for families who have children in hospital. Um, one of the other issues that is demanding a lot of time in the clinical, on the clinical side is, or research side, is the coronavirus vaccine, which is slowing other clinical trials. How do you see the impact in your particular field? Well, uh, you know, uh, clinical trials in oncology have, um, really been uh, slowed by the pandemic. I, I don't think because the, the, the vaccine trials are not to blame for that. I mean, it's, it, it's uh, a number of reasons, but uh, uh, cancer clinical trials, uh, maybe at the, at the worst, they were down about, uh, our, uh, our NCI trials were down about 50% at, 
at the worst period early in the pandemic. They've now recovered somewhat and we're, we're, we're still down substantially from our usual accrual rates, but we, we have seen some modest recovery from the, the nadir of 50%. It's even worse, that's for therapeutic trials that like test the new drug in a patient, for example. Uh, we have other non-therapeutic trials, the screening trials and, and quality of life trials. Those are even more affected, so their accruals down to a greater extent. We've also heard from our industry colleagues, you know, the pharmaceutical companies that, that pay for clinical trials in cancer patients, that their trial accrual is, is more affected even than ours. So we, the clinical trials engine has been, you know, compromised severely by coronavirus. And uh, we have been trying to work flexibly with the FDA and our uh, investigators to uh, provide means to resume clinical trials activity despite the pandemic. As I said, we're having some success, but still we, we, we need to rebuild that capacity because clinical trials really are how you make progress for patients with cancer. And we, we can't afford to have those efforts delayed. And how are you making those trials as inclusive as possible, getting to as broad as, uh, as uh, part of the population as you can? Right, so uh, you know, testing uh, new therapies and new cancer tri clinical trial ideas in representative populations is absolutely critical for a number of reasons. Uh, it, it assures that uh, the therapies are generalizable to a real-world population, but I think it's also just a part of good care. We know that clinical trials access is a surrogate marker or a proxy, if you will, for high-quality oncology care. And so if certain populations aren't getting access to clinical trials, that, that's a sign that something is wrong in the clinical trials enterprise. And the NCI is really focused, along with the FDA, a lot of attention to trying to make a clinical trials enrollment more diverse and inclusive. Probably the, the mechanism that we've had that's been most successful at the National Cancer Institute is to spread accrual throughout the country. So through our National Community Oncology Research Program, the NCORE network, we can enroll patients at 1,100 sites nationally. And some of those sites are predominantly uh, serving vulnerable or underserved populations, and therefore they have uh, more success in, in diversity and clinical trials enrollment. So stepping back a bit, the U.S. has long been praised for some of the huge advances in personalized medicine and, and uh, very targeted care that you're talking about, um, and criticized for its lack of investment in public health. And now we're paying the price, even cancer patients are paying the price uh, for that lack of investment. Can we do both going ahead? Should there be a recalibration in where money is being spent? What's your overview of these two contrasting approaches to healthcare? Yes, I, I think um, uh, both in my job at the National Cancer Institute and my, my work at the FDA, uh, it, it's it's clear that uh, you know you can't go it alone with just therapy of disease. One needs preventative public health approaches that have to be very robust and well organized. And uh, no, no doubt the current pandemic has provided serious public health challenges for our country and every nation, frankly. Uh, we have to uh, diagnose and prevent disease in a way that is uh, very nimble and can meet uh, unexpected challenges in the future. Uh, I, I think that um, we, we, we can do both and, and, and frankly, we have to do both. Yeah, I have a question from a reader that I'd like to, to, or a listener that I'd like to read out to you. This is from Matthew DeAngelis from California, who asks, what has been the impact of the $900 million funding cut from the National Cancer Institute? Right, I, I suspect the, uh, Matthew's referring to a, a cut in our funding in the president's, one of the president's proposed budgets in prior years. However, uh, the last few years, the actual funding, the increase, the, the funding to the National Cancer Institute has increased. 
uh, looking, uh, you know, from both uh, an increase of our base budget as well as um, new initiatives like the Cancer Moonshot and the, the cancer uh, Childhood Cancer Data Commons, data initiatives, the CCDI. So the NCI's enjoyed pretty good support from the appropriations uh, in Congress over the, the years that I've been in, in, at the NCI, NCI since 2017. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen for funding in 2021 yet. It's a very interesting appropriations year. Uh, but I think uh, what I found as NCI director is that there's widespread support for cancer research in the United States, and that, that uh, includes Congress. When I go and speak to members of Congress on either side of the aisle, regardless of political persuasion, uh, people just want to do better with cancer and they want to support the NCI. And so I think we've really benefited from that strong support. So you're optimistic about the budget in 2021? Uh, hopeful. Ho hopeful. Uh, you know, I don't think we, uh, it's, it's a very um, interesting time with the pandemic. There's this talk of a, a supplementary funding, a fifth supplement, for example, and, and then the 21 appropriations. So it is a um, lot of moving parts. Appropriations is complex every year and this year is like no other. Yeah, so talking about moving parts, how do you see there should be realignments in the healthcare system as we, you know, based on what we've learned from COVID-19? Um, what should change going ahead? What are your brothers? And, and as you look at the big system, you've seen it from the head of the NCI and also as FDA commissioner. Yeah, I, I think that we, um, when this is said and done and when life returns to a bit more normal, we're going to take a hard look at what we did well and didn't do so well during this pandemic. I think there will be a lot of interest about how we use data and collect data from our citizens. I think that um, you know the, the public health opportunities there are tremendous. I think there will be interest in um, particularly how we reach these vulnerable populations. So it doesn't do a cancer patient or a coronavirus patient any good to have a new new way to screen, diagnose, or treat their problem if you can't get get that therapy or, or, or new 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 approach disseminated into the places where people live to reach these populations. Uh, you know, we've seen the cost of that here is the, the impact of the uh, uh, coronavirus on, on uh, African-American patients and on Hispanic patients is disproportionate. And uh, that is no surprise to an oncologist because those same disparities exist in cancer. But uh, those create problems uh, that we, we will have to as a society address. So we've had a number of readers writing in to talk about the lack of affordability of some of the most specialized treatments. What would your advice be to the federal government to try to make those uh, treatments more broadly accessible? Now, drug pricing is the uh, one of the big problems in cancer research. I mentioned the good news that we're making a lot of progress and that, that we're developing these new therapies. And we have this whole new paradigm of cancer research that's been very effective, allowing us to make uh, really meaningful advances for patients over the last years. Uh, but those, those new therapies come at a tremendous cost. They are very expensive. Um, no one with cancer should be forced to choose between their drug costs and their mortgage or their rent, for example. So, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, we, we have to, as a society, figure out how to uh, develop these new therapies, reward these scientists and innovators who come up with these new therapies, because we still need new innovation. We still have a lot of bad cancer that doesn't have a good treatment. But at the same time, then make those new therapies and new uh, uh, ways of diagnosing and, and preventing cancer available to everyone regardless of ability to pay. And um, it, it is a, a real challenge. I, I think we want to, you know, pr provide the innovation for which the United States has been so successful in the pharmaceutical uh, drug discovery side, 
but at the same time, uh, you know, really be fair to patients and, and recognize that uh, uh, these drugs are preclusively expensive. Just the co-pays from these drugs can be exclusively, you know, preclusively expensive. And so uh, I, I think we have to collectively do better. But I, I will say um, it is a true statement that uh, uh, having no therapy for a disease, no approach to it is a much worse problem than having an effective therapy that is too expensive. Because an expensive therapy can be made more cheaply someday, but having no therapy at all is, is a, can be scientifically intractable. So I'm overly, I, overall, I am optimistic that we can both uh, take a better care of our patients and bring the prices down of these drugs where they're affordable. You were acting FDA commissioner for about eight months in 2019. If the pandemic had emerged then, how would you have approached it differently? I mean, uh, that, you know, it's impossible to Monday morning quarterback a situation like this. As I mentioned, there has never been really a public health emergency in, in the United States like this, and there, there's no playbook for this. I, I, I want to compliment the professional staff at the FDA. I, I, you know, the, the people that work there are brilliant and creative and committed to the public health. And I think that they uh, moved uh, with great swiftness and agency to try and address the pandemic uh, using the authorities and, and knowledge they had. Although, of course, you know, information initially was, was quite imperfect. But I think it's you know, a really talented group of people. I, I have been very impressed how they've risen to the challenges of vaccine and drug development during the pandemic, and as well as the development of new diagnostics. And uh, you know, I, I can't say that I would have done anything differently. It's, it's impossible to predict. But I, I think the, um, the pandemic has stretched that agency as it's stretched all areas of government because it, it has really been a tough situation and we don't have a prior experience on which to base our actions. And what's your best, best guess on when we'll get a vaccine? You know, I, I think the uh, when we'll get a vaccine is the, the uh, issue. Uh, um, the one, you know, the, 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 what I learned about vaccines as FDA commissioner is that they have to be very safe. That, uh, they are among the, the need is for them to be the most safest medicines that we use because you want to give them to lots and lots of people, many of whom aren't uh, sick, you know, who don't really feel like they need it, right? So that's the, the social compact of herd immunity is you need to vaccinate a lot of people, mm. even though not everyone uh, feels like they uh, need that medicine. So safety is paramount, and 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 that's really hard to predict. You know, safe. You know, if, if these many uh, uh, different vaccines that are in trials right now turn out to have great safety data, then this could go pretty quickly. Uh, you know, we've the the, the pace of the uh, drug development, the the, the uh, de development pipeline here has been unprecedented. To get you know human phase three trials going so quickly is really amazing. Mm -hmm. But uh, if the safety has an unexpected surprise, this this could take a while. I, I think. Um, uh, the data I've seen thus far uh, from the uh, few uh, vaccines that have, have published much uh, look very encouraging in their ability to induce immune response. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, they have to be effective, but uh, we'll have to stay tuned. I think predicting a, a process like this is just very hard to handicap. So just um, before we finish, I'd love to ask you about the biggest uh, and most ambitious or change that you see coming? Where, where do you place your hope now in cancer treatment? What's the next thing that you think could make a big advance despite the coronavirus at the moment? Well, I mean, I think the, the overwhelming change of cancer research during my lifetime as a cancer researcher and cancer doctor has been related to this new paradigm that cancer is not one disease or 10 diseases, but it's hundreds of diseases or thousands of diseases. And then each one of those kinds of cancer needs its own therapy 
its own you know treatment, its own mechanism method of preventing it. So I, I, I think that this 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 move to not think of cancers you know one big entity the way we think of other diseases, but to, to limit it to uh, you know lots and lots of different heterogeneous diseases and then treat them one by one has been really effective. It, it is working. That yeah. paradigm has allowed us to make great progress. And so you, you can't really say, you know, what's the one thing that's going to work for those like million different things? Because liver cancer is going to need something different from breast cancer and colon cancer. And even within something like breast cancer, there are many, many different kinds of breast cancer and they're all going to need their own specific therapy. And so figuring those out one by one and working on treatments for each specific entity, that has been very successful. And I expect that paradigm to continue for a while. So uh, I think the progress we've seen in cancer over the last decades will continue. Uh, although, uh, as we started at the beginning, the, the pandemic is going to set things back for a little while. Dr. Sharpless, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciated that, and we all learned a lot from your comments. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.